right, let's go. All right, regulatory takings. Actually, it's not class 37, I think it's class 35. Um, all right, so we are uh, working on our, our three-part series on takings. What we went over on Thursday was eminent domain. So the, the, the question there was whether or not the government has the power to uh, take property uh, under particular circumstances. There, the big issue was uh, whether... Um, economic development uh, justified the use of the, the government's eminent domain power, and then we did the case on compensation, right? Um, just to prove once again that property is totally relevant in the modern world, uh, Michelle Bachman was apparently asked on Saturday night at the debate. Um, you guys wonder what law professors do on a Saturday night. Uh, the, the GOP debate, what is the worst opinion uh, from the Supreme Court in the last 20 years? Kilo. Kilo. A good staff work. She knew one. Um, <laughs> actually, she probably didn't know, but uh, I mean, it's interesting, right? I mean, I, I'm not sure I can certainly think of a lot of controversial decisions, but in fact, Kila didn't really even move the ball that much. I guess it was just such a obvious uh, uh, example of, of where the court expressly held that economic development was a it was an appropriate me mechanism for taking private property, but that was uh, certainly certainly hit a chord. Uh, no doubt about that. All right, any questions before we move along? All right, so here's what we're going to do. We, got three, we have three cases on tap today. So Pennsylvania Coal, uh, Penn Central, and Loretto, right? And then we'll follow up on Wednesday with, with uh, Lucas and some other uh, cases to, to complete our... Um, Loretto is for tomorrow. Oh, okay. Well, we'll do Loretto tomorrow then. <laughs> no, you want to do it today? We can do it tomorrow. Um, okay. So this is what, I think the way to think about this is, is, is following. So we have now, because we talked about eminent domain, right, we have now gone beyond the question of um, whether or not the government has the power to do this, right? That's what we talked That's the key of that, that the question was, is the government justified in using its special power of eminent domain? We talked about why we want the government to have that power and so forth. Today we're talking about takings, whether something, some um, uh, action taken by the government indeed falls within its eminent domain power or whether it instead falls within its more general police powers. Right. So when we say police powers here, we mean something other than a takings power and eminent domain power, right? So if we call something takings, it means you owe money, basically. If it's a not a taking, you don't owe money, right? It's part of your generalized police power that the government has, right? So there are sort of two ways to think about the regulatory takings doctrine. One is it's an insurance policy. It might be viewed as an insurance policy against certain severe types of harms from government regulation, right? So the idea here is that we want to have a set of, of rules in place so that uh, people who are uh, very severely harmed or, or particularly hurt by um, government regulation are able to seek some sort of compensation for that and that those harms, those, the government regulatory harms don't fall disproportionately on a fairly small group of people, fairly small number of people. Okay? Um, and, or you can think of this as 
um, and more generally, an attempt to define the line between the police power and eminent domain, right? The, our goal here, the exercise, is to do something um, like this, is to think about um, the eminent domain power on the one hand and the police power on the other, and that we're trying to divide up the line between these two categories. And on the one side, of course, there's a taking, you owe money. Other side, you have regulation, there's no compensation. Okay? And I think either one of those is a, is a reasonable uh, way to think about this. I, you can see threads of both of these in the cases, um, by the way. Both, um, in, in fact, in, in Pennsylvania Coal, you can see uh, both arguments. That what we're trying to do here, the exercise of the takings clause, is to make sure that people who are disproportionately harmed get some recovery. And we're also trying to police the power between um, or we're trying to draw the line between police power and eminent domain. Why is it important from a judicial perspective to draw that line? If we all agree, as like I said, we agree that the government has the authority here to do this, right? None of the, none of the questions involved in the next two classes are going to involve the government's authority to do what it's doing. The question is whether the government owes money, right? Why does the court feel like that's necessary? I mean, sure, this particular person... Um, may want money, but on a larger scale, why bother? Well, if you clearly define that line, then you don't have to keep relitigating those issues over and over and over again. You'd be able to say, okay, well, here's the line, and you either... Right, but one clear example was anytime you diminish somebody's property value because of a regulatory enactment, you owe them the, the difference. That'd be clear, simple, easy to administer. You just show up at a government office and say, you know, the, the prohibition against um, uh, whatever... Uh, against you know housing a thousand cats in my house um, is is diminishing my property value by X. You owe me X, right? You could do that, um, or you could say alternatively that there that we don't need to define this line because you know yes it might be a, an eminent domain power, but but as long as you're going to get your compensation back, sort of in due course, because everybody benefits benefits from regulations, so you get your compensation just by being part of an ordered society. So why, why try and define this line with, with care? Because you could find clear rules. One is a clear rule, but you could definitely come up with clear rules that were just the corner solutions. Why else? Mm -hmm. sort of cynical view is that the government wants to exercise their power as much as possible to the line where it won't have to pay compensation. And that line is wherever the Constitution Good, exactly, right? And this is, this is part of what, they, what um, is said in Pennsylvania Coal, is that, that, that the natural state of things, right, and, and legislators are people too, um, we think, uh, and, and is that if something is free, then they're not going to internalize as many of the costs of that. And so if it's really all just part of the police power, you would expect more of it, right? And so if you think that what the, the, the um, uh, prohibition on takings without just compensation is all about is in a sense a check on the government, is a limit on governmental power, then you're going to want to police this line just so that you don't have too much of that, right? Because if it's free, you're going to get more. If they have to pay for it, presumably part of the reason, as you'll remember from last week, part of the reason we're making the government pay is so that the government has to internalize 
at least some, maybe not all, but at least some of the costs associated with the, the regulation that it imposes. Right? Everybody get that? So, so part of the reason we want to draw this line, I think, is to make sure um, that we can tell um, when the government should be limited in its authority and when the government should not be quite so limited. All right? Comments? Questions? All right. So let's just dive into the cases then. So Pennsylvania coal, right? Um, so this is a uh, uh, owners in fee simple of land are permitted to deed away the subsurface mineral rights. Um, that's just a, a, obviously you can do that as, as a fee simple owner, um, uh, including rights to, to mine anthracite coal. Um, and so the, the owners, the property owners here, the Mahan, Mahones, uh, had in fact exercised such a waiver of support, right? They had, they had given away their right. There's a common law right, by the way, for subjacent support. So even if you sell mineral rights, um, the common law has for generations decided that even if you sort of give a blanket sale to mineral rights, uh, meaning the right to, to, to mine on your land, you retain, as a matter of the common law, the right to subjacent support, by which we mean the, the support under your house, right? So the idea would be that even under the common law, you know, if you had a house, um, you would still have the right uh, to, the, to whatever support uh, there was underneath your, the lot. I guess this is not a very good drawing. <laughs> so even if you could mine, you'd have to allow that. You'd have to allow. You could mine out here, but not in underneath, right? That would be the idea. You wouldn't. The selling of the mineral rights would not necessarily sell um, the the land underneath. Now that was only subjacent support. That you know, if it turns out that the only a few feet of land underneath was enough to, to support the building, then that was, that's all you would get under the old common law. But you could even waive that, right? So the idea here was that what, what the landowners had done was actually waive any rights they had to subjacent support of uh, the buildings on their property, okay? And then at some point, um, the uh, Pennsylvania Acts and Act uh, the Kohler Act, which makes it unlawful to mine coal in Pennsylvania in a way to threaten any structure uh, used for human um, uh, activities, right? So basically uh, changes the nature of this relationship notwithstanding the waiver. And the question is, although the, the case is initially framed as sort of a lawsuit between the landowner and the coal mining company, the issue then arises as to what, whether or not the government ends up having to pay um, for this change in the law, whether the Kohler Act is a taking that deserves due compensation, just compensation, or whether it's something different, right? So this is just a little bit of, of background. Anthracite is, is um, fairly common in, in uh, northeastern Pennsylvania. Um, we're down here. Uh, and this is, uh, and so this is the bituminous, which actually doesn't have the same problem. Anybody know the difference between these two? Okay, part of it, the anthracite is definitely closer to the surface. What else? Carbon content? Yeah, so they're different, right? The bituminous, has, I think, has lower carbon content. The anthracite's sort of a richer, better, in some sense. It's softer, too. The land is softer. So much more prone to various types of problems, right? And, and sort of northeast Pennsylvania 
is, is full of these sorts of problems, right? Where you have um, mines and, and they end up, even sometimes years later, collapsing and, and causing subsidence and damage and so forth. Um, there's also causing uh, fires, too. There's still a, there's a uh, uh, town in central Pennsylvania right up in here that's still burning that you can drive by, actually, and see the smoke coming out of vents. So the coal is still burning. It has been for 40 years, something like that. So small environmental problem. <laughs> Minor. All right. But in any event, uh, so this is why Pennsylvania passes the Coal Act, right? They decide that this is, this is something we need to prevent. So notwithstanding that you, you could, in theory, wave away your rights to subjacent support under your house, you can't, uh, no mining can occur that would actually threaten uh, your property, okay? Um, all right, so, so why, uh, you know, what the, the court um, is dealing with here is, is what we talked about a minute ago, which is it feels like it has this need to define this line because otherwise um, uh, it is concerned that, that the, the government um, would increasingly encroach upon people's property rights in the name of a general regulatory police power, and that deferring to the legislature, even though the court begins by saying we're always very deferential to the legislature's judgments about these things, um, doesn't really do it because at the end of the day, there's a reason uh, that that clause in the is in the Constitution, and that reason is to, to uh, ensure um, that this line gets drawn um, and, in a sense, limits the government. There's a check on governmental power, right? Okay. Any questions about that? So you read the case, and it comes down to a debate between Holmes and Brandeis, which is interesting because they usually almost always agreed. Uh, uh, they almost always agreed on constitutional interpretation matters. And so this is sort of the, the ways uh, in which they differed here, right? So the question, so let's take each factor, right? So Holmes says there's a diminution of the value of the property here um, uh, by the Kohler Act and that is a great diminution of value, whereas Brandeis says, not so great. Doesn't really diminish the value very much. So what's the difference between these two on this point? How can they come out of, come out of this so differently? Holmes is looking at the, uh, just the coal underneath the house, whereas Brandeis is looking at the coal part of the entire land of Exactly. Exactly, right? So they are looking at two, in a sense, two different concepts of what the property in question here is, right? So Holmes says the property that's been taken is this shaft of coal that's underneath the house, right? That has been expressly waved away, that otherwise would have been part of the common law um, right to subjacent support, um, and, that, uh, and that that is gone, right? What Brandeis says is, okay, well, sure, that you can't use anymore, but look at all of the other coal that you can mine, right? You can mine everywhere else on the property except underneath this house. So if you look at it from that perspective, it's really not that big a diminution in value because all you're losing is just the shaft of coal underneath the house, right? So this is the precursor uh, to what we will, uh, what we uh, call again and again uh, the denominator problem, right? So much of regulatory takings analysis, ter analysis turns on what your denominator is 
for uh, your property right. And we'll, that's just, we'll talk about that some more. All right. All right. So, and then they go on to say a nuisance of a regulated activity. What Brandeis is saying is this doesn't look like a taking. This is just avoiding a noxious use. It's just avoiding a use. It's no good that the public has decided is not something they want to have happening in, in this area of Pennsylvania because of the bad effects that have come before. Right? And Holmes says this is totally irrelevant. Right? Because all of the noxious activity, all the personal harm or the property damage, it can all be avoided because you know, the property owners here, they, they weigh this. Right? They assume the risk that their house would cave into the ground. Right? And um, there's notice required. So because there's notice, and they were giving notice that they were going to start mining under their house, it's not like anybody's going to live in the house, right? You're going to leave. You're going to take your stuff because of the, the risk that the house could cave, right? So what, what Holmes says is that's not, that's not that much of a nuisance, right? So you wave away your right to live in your house. You're allowed to do that. That's a fairly standard um, uh, thing that people can do. Brandeis says, no, this is, this is something that, that uh, we think is um, you know, well within the ambit of preventing nuisances, property damage, potential harm, uh, and so forth. Right? Another issue, reciprocity of advantage. Holmes says the coal company here is the clear loser. Right? This, this regulation specifically targets one person, one, well, not one person, but one set of corporations um, here, coal mining operations, and it's really a targeted uh, attack on them, right? Because they're the ones who get the benefit to this, this shaft of coal underneath houses, and now this is gone, right? No one else gets that benefit, and, and so they get no advantage to this. Brandeis says, no, in fact, the coal company, like everybody else, benefits from the general advantage that regu these regulations provide. Right? How? How might the coal company actually be benefiting from the regulations uh, uh, involved here? Mm -hmm. Okay, there's one, right? So just the fact that it seems entirely clear, but what they can and can't do now, their argument would be, it was entirely clear before I could do whatever I want because I got the money, you know, I, I paid for that. And so I had a clear and unmistakable right to, to cave the house in if I needed to. Okay. Sure, exactly, right? So everyone's going to have more stable land, so there's going to be less of these sort of unknown sinkholes, less property damage, maybe taxes will generally be lower because they don't have to pull houses out of the ground, things like that, right? Okay, anything else? Yeah? Less supply, they can jack up prices. Okay, good. Over the long run, uh, this is just a supply and demand issue, and to the extent that certain uh, areas of coal are taken off the market, that means that the rest of it will be in slightly higher demand, and they can command more price for it. Worker safety is kind of dangerous to house coal Okay, good. Yeah, exactly. That would obviously be unpleasant uh, and, and have potential, <laughs> uh, potential tort issues if a, if a house uh, fell on you when you were working in a mine hundreds of feet below. Um, so that would be a good torts exam, actually. Uh, and all right, so there's that. And then anything else? What about sort of from an economic perspective? Yep. I was going to say that's probably backlash and publicity issue. Good, right. So 
Exactly, right? I mean, it, the fact that these regulations exist mean that people aren't going to be agitating for an outright ban on mining, which might otherwise be the case if there was a lot of, of collapsing houses, right? And in a similar vein, it, and the fact that these regulations exist make it probably more likely that people were, will be interested in selling away their mineral rights, right? Because they know they're protected. They know that their house, no matter what, no matter what sort of paper they sign, uh, is protected from being caved in by the, the mining operation. Okay? All right. So, so this is, this is the, the denominator problem I was talking about uh, earlier. Right? Well, actually, did we finish? Let me go back. Yeah. Uh, well, so the, the other difference here is Holmes seems to think it's incredibly important that the homeowner here expressly waive um, uh, their rights to support. Uh, Brandeis sort of brushes that off and says it... You know, we have regulations all the time that you can't waive yourself out of, right? Uh, and that that's not that important. One thing I was thinking when I read this case was that um, property owner has the right to enjoy his property or whatever, however he wants to, so long as it doesn't affect the rights of other property owners. Mm -hmm. And so I was thinking, you couldn't, even if you own the, the, the mineral rights, you couldn't mine under the house in such a way that would cause the house to fall based on that. Idea, but is that what's being waived away, or is that part of the analysis? So I'm not sure I understand your. I mean, the the waiver was to that to the subjacent support rights, part of the mineral rights transaction. And actually, the way that this um, this particular house was purchased is that apparently the homeowners actually purchased the surface land when the coal company had already owned the the subsurface land or owned the whole thing, and they purchased the surface. There's a common law right to subjacent support, which in their deed they expressly waive, right? So they have waived their right to make any claims against the coal company for digging out the coal underneath their house, right? Yeah, but I mean, as a, I guess it's a, a nuisance thing, I guess, that I'm thinking of. That even, I mean, you're talking about the property rights as far as the, the right to possess that coal, but I'm talking about the, the right of the homeowner to be able to use his property, which is the surface, right. without interference from the person that owns the other property, which is below the surface. Right. But they've all, I mean, but it's not a nuisance if they've already agreed, right? I mean, that's the thing, right? They, they expressly agreed that the coal company could do that. I mean, you could, uh, I mean, and yes, to some degree, that's exactly what the Pennsylvania legislature is doing, is that they're you know, taking away the right of the homeowner to waive that and saying it is a nuisance to do that no matter what you've agreed upon, right? But at least prior to this enactment, it, you were allowed to waive that and you couldn't later come back and say it was a nuisance, okay? Okay, so, so this is the denominator problem, right? And, and this ends up being um, incredibly important to, to regulatory takings, which is, so you, you know, you have the value diminished by the regulation, uh, divided by the value of the property, right? And whatever you're putting, and, and so it's relatively straightforward in most cases to determine what the top is, right? What the value diminished by the regulation is, right? I mean, it's here. I mean, this case is a good example. It's just this shaft of coal, however, however deep it goes, however big the house is, that square foot going down, right? <coughs> The question and where we get tangled up in a lot of these cases is what is the value of the overall value of the property um, that we should uh, consider when we're considering the diminished value, right? So Holmes here says, 
Well, the value of the property is the property that's been taken is this shaft of coal. Okay? Why does he think that? Why does he say that's the property? Because that's the extent of what's being affected by the coal. Okay. Well, why not? Why does he think that's a better measure? than the overall property in question. So, so your, your argument is that's what the, the regulatory act is directed at, and so therefore that defines it. But then you're always going to have a taking, right? If that's true. Well, but don't we consider how much the value diminishes? Well, sure, but here they're just saying you can't mine it at all. So that's a... It's well, I, I think that makes his point. Okay, yeah, maybe. What else? He thinks that... Yeah? Maybe because the way the, the rights are separated here. Good, so explain. Well, you know, the, the right to mine was, was separated by contract. That's the way I understood it. Sure, there was a separate right to mine, it was, but... It was in the interest of the coal miners versus the homeowner. Who, he was sort of wanting his house and wanted enforcement of the... No, well, I mean, they're fighting each other about, the, his, the, about their right to mine under the house, but the, the ultimate issue here that the court is trying to deal with is the whether there's compensation that needs to be paid for the Kohler Act, which interferes with the contractual relationship. So maybe if they're taking just a little bit on the side, it won't be a big deal, because that's just a small part of the overall piece. But they specifically contracted for that piece underneath, Good. knowing that that's maybe not the primary goal, but a pretty important goal of what they want to do with the contract. And so taking that... Yeah, and so why, I mean... I mean, we, we have abrogations of contracts all the time that aren't takings. Why is this particular one so important to Holmes? So, I guess barring from contract law, maybe it was a material part of the contract. And so... Yeah, but even, even though we don't really call it a takings, if we say that, you know, you can't sell iPhones on the secondary market, I don't think we would necessarily call that. We might call it a taking, but, but probably not. Um, or you can't sell tickets at below market value, or something like that. I mean, there's a lot of contracts that we interfere with. Why is this one, this agreement, which you're right, there was an agreement specific, right? There was a specifically called out agreement as to this shaft of land. What does it sound like? Any property concepts we've thought about? Hmm? Okay. Covenant to basically it, it runs with both the surface and then the mineral rights. Good. Yes. Yeah. And so what's important about calling so you're right, it's it's essentially what they agreed to here was a a covenant, or you could call it a servitude, because it sort of in some senses looks like an easement to get in here and 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 uh, and mine. But in any event, it's a it's a um, you know, it's a specific agreement as to a specific property grant, right? And so because of that, Holmes sort of grabs onto that and says, that's the property right. That's a separate and independent property right. This servitude, this covenant, is itself a property right, which is wholly taken by this enactment, right? What um, uh, Brandeis says is, no, that is not the right way to characterize this. All that the, the, the Kohler Act is doing is limiting the overall expanse of the amount of coal that can be taken from people's property, thereby saying, well, you can't take it from directly under buildings. Right? And then this idea, this particular covenant, 
is really just part of the overall property. Everybody get that? So what, what Holmes does is he focuses on this, on this as an abrogation of the servitude. Abrogation of a servitude. Is that what happened was, in Holmes's view, uh, is that they had agreed almost as if they had done this as a separate and entirely different transaction. Right? And it was sort of separately called out. But a separate uh, transaction that said, you can mine underneath my house for coal. And that what the Kohler Act, and so that, that is, that's a covenant, right? The covenant to mine, might call it an easement, whatever. It's a servitude to get under my house. It's a property right, right? It's a right that, that we think of as a property right. Um, and so then the Kohler Act comes in and says, no, that, that servitude is now gone, right? The coal company used to have that right. It is now gone, Okay. Brandeis doesn't think that's correct, right? Because he says that's defining down too narrowly uh, what we mean by the property right at issue, and that the better way to think about the property right is a, is a broader concept of the entire property, and that that's what, what the, um, uh, the, the regulatory uh, enactment was directed towards, and, in, and it just limited this small part, right? So one interesting thing, and we've talked about this a little bit before, is that impositions of servitudes are not held to be takings. Right? So if the court decides that there's an easement by necessity that crosses your land, you get money for that? Almost never. Right? That, that doesn't happen. Right? But Pennsylvania coal seems to indicate that the abrogation of a servitude... Right? The taking away of the servitude that the coal company had is indeed a taking. How does that make sense? Does it? Anyone? What's the difference? Okay. Yes, exactly. Right, exactly. So that's probably the primary difference, right? Is that the judges generally don't think that what they do is a taking, right? Because they're not changing the nature of your property, right? They're simply discovering the true essence of your property, right? Right? There's, oh, you had this right was always this way. You might have thought you owned the dry sand beaches, but in fact you never did. So you don't get the taking. You don't get the compensation, right? But if, an, but if a statute is passed that says now the dry sand beaches are owned by the state and the court finds that, well, prior to that, the dry sand beaches were owned by the property owner, then that's a taking, Right? And again, because the judges, usually we think of judges as finding sort of the, the true nature of the property rather than changing the conditions. Now, as a practical matter, does that really change, right? I mean, at one point we thought that you did own the dry sand beaches. The other point you thought you didn't. Either way, it's the same. Whether the statute, uh, whether there's a statute passed that does it or whether the court decrees it, but uh, the, the takings analysis ends up being quite different. Right.
well, they paid for the right to to mine under the house, and uh, you know the holding in the case is basically that now the government owns owes them something for that, right? How do they? How do they? Now they have to figure out. They got to sue the government for for the fact that now they can't mine under all these houses all over Pennsylvania that they thought you know they'd have to tally it up and say here's how much coal we you know had an expectation of being able to mine we can no longer mine therefore you owe us that money. But if we're thinking about this in terms of externalities, and this is the broad goal of why we're actually call, starting out the dividing line between eminent domain and police power, this police power here is, in fact, to prevent externalities imposed by the coal mining company. Right. So how does, where's the logic, where's like the, the externalities logic here? So, well, I mean, I think that, so what you're saying is, oh, the takings means that we're now paying the coal company. Well, the coal company's saying, we paid for the right to cause externalities. There wasn't any externality, right? That'd be the coal company's argument, is that we paid for this, right? We paid the, the, sub, the surface landowner a little bit of extra money so that we could potentially destroy their house. Yeah. So there's no externality involved here. We've home, internalized that. To the that. homeowner, that is, but in terms of why... Well, that's, you know, Holmes's view is there's no externalities as long as the, you know, this is somebody's house. There's certainly, you have the right, generally, unless it's, uh, unless you don't have the right, as it turns out. You have the right, generally, to, to destroy your house, to plow it under, to let it fall into the ground. And if you want to sign away your right uh, for some money, you're generally allowed to do that. Now, you know, Pennsylvania has decided we don't want to do that. Um, and so... Yeah, I know it's like trying to think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think that. I mean, I think I understand what you're saying, but I think that that's not. I mean, the externalities there are not the same ones that the. I think are the same ones that the coal company says we've internalized. Right? We're paying. We're going around. We're paying for all this. Okay. All right. Questions? Comments? No. Yes. Well, you would think that the coal company would be willing to pay this guy up to the value of the coal under his house. Right. So, so one one question is, what do you think is going to happen? What should, is going to happen afterwards? And one is, they won't be mining under houses anymore. Another is, they will they will pay you for your surface rights, and then they'll say, by the way, we're going to plow your house, and then we can mine all we want, right? Uh, and some people might take that deal, right? Uh, and now it's obviously a different deal than what they had. <laughs> the right to do before, but maybe, maybe people do that. Interestingly enough, even after this case, if you saw in the notes, the, uh, the coal companies would uniformly compensate if it turned out that your house caved in, right? Even though um, uh, they, uh, even, well, even prior to the Kohler Act, they would just pay. They still do. Why? Yeah, that's and, probably part of it. And also, I was thinking that there might be some level of tort liability if they did, if they just had a bunch of like potholes. And, you know what I mean? Like, oh, you mean if they didn't? Yeah, I mean, they. It do, I actually don't think that they did a lot of um, sort of recovery of the ground. I think they just sort of, if your house fell on the ground, they basically paid you for the value of the contents that were destroyed, and then everybody sort of. Don't go near the hole, right? Uh, I think is the, the general idea in that part of the country. It's probably cheaper if they immediately offer them a settlement saying, you know, we broke your house, sorry, here's enough to replace it, as opposed to 
cheaper than waiving the contract and saying you yeah. signed your rights away? Yeah, because they may then take you to court because there's an obligation. Okay, maybe. Amy? Uh, going back to what you said before, people are probably more likely to sign away the rights to mine on their property if they think that if something bad happens. Exactly, right. So even beyond sort of the good PR, it's it's probably in their economic interest because they want they want as many people as possible to give away the mining rights. And so to, to make it seem like they're going to help you out, on you know, they'll probably come and say, oh, look, you sign away your subsurface rights, but really if something happens, we'll take care of it, right? Uh, we'll make sure that you, uh, that we, that we, pull your stuff out of the hole and <laughs> you can move on to somewhere else. All right. Any questions about uh, Mahan? So uh, there was a note. This The case is probably as to the specific question of whether the abrogation of the right uh, of uh, to sign away your your servitude for um, subjacent sub rights is a taking. That specific question seems to have been reversed, right? So it's the, 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 the law, the case is probably no longer good law, although it establishes our modern thinking about regulatory takings, particularly the exchange between Brandeis and Holmes about what things are important and how to, how to deal with it, right? All right, so Penn Central. Right? So interestingly enough, so Penn Central, de it, well, so Maham was about you know, this shaft of coal underneath, and Penn Central is about a building and the air rights above. So it's almost exactly the mirror opposite of the, the Mahan case, right? So uh, how many people have been to Grand Central? Probably almost everyone. You know, what could have been? No? <laughs> Seriously, this is the proposal. Um, Yeah, so, I mean, I don't know. It's, it, everyone's like, oh, it's so terrible, particularly after, you know, I give you that picture and then this one. But I don't know. I mean, you might get used to it after a while. These things, <laughs> these things grow on you, right? Sort of like mold or whatever. Um, all right, so the case here uh, is, is a, in particular about um, a particular kind of regulatory regime they had in New York City. Right and and the the how that plays out right so what's well the context here is this is the late seventies uh, what's going on in New York City in the late seventies the municipal finances of New York City in the late seventies yes bankrupt right the city is desperate they're bankrupt they're selling anything they can find uh, and so what they decide they're going to do is we have this great you know obviously great location right. Um, why not do Class A office space on top? Um, uh, and you saw the pictures. They did pretty much exactly the same thing with uh, Penn Station, Madison Square Garden. Right? Uh, there was a, a traditional uh, train station there, and it was bulldozed and converted, uh, and the train station put down in the basement, uh, which is, by the way, one of the most horrible places. Uh, anyway. Um, <laughs> It is so disappointing to show up in New York City and you show up like in an airline terminal except three stories down. Uh, all right. So, so the issue here is whether or not this, uh, this um, landmark preservation law, right? So this is a particular kind of regulatory regime that went, that designated, that used a committee um, to designate particular buildings, properties, et cetera, as landmarks, right? And once you are designated as a landmark, 
it dramatically, if not entirely, prevented your ability from further developing the property. And in particular, you weren't the air rights were not yours anymore. Right? And that's really what the issue is. Right? The issue is whether or not that enactment, the the designation of Grand Central Station as a uh, landmark worthy of preservation um, is a taking, a taking that must be compensated for, um, or whether it's just regulatory. And it's regulatory in the sense that it doesn't need to be compensated for. Right? So we have a debate uh, again here, and this is between Brennan and Rehnquist. Right? So here's our denominator problem, right? So what's our diminution of value, right? So Brennan says the entire parcel is the denominator, right? That look, we're not taking away everything, right? We're just taking away the 40 stories of air rights. They still have an enormously valuable property in the, the Grand Central Terminal itself, uh, which has uh, lots of potential for renovation, rental, things like that. Uh, and therefore, the, the amount, you need to think about this in terms of the amount of, of property um, that is actually being taken. Rehnquist says, regardless of how you slice it up, right, this is a really significant diminution in value. It eliminates essentially all your development of rights. Right? You really can't change much about this property uh, anymore once this landmark preservation law uh, comes into play, uh, and therefore uh, significant diminution of value. Interference with reasonable investment-backed expectations, right? So this is a little bit similar to that to the waiver issue uh, that was raised before, right? So what Brennan says is that the question to be asked here, reasonable investment-backed expectations factor, the question to be asked is, is a return still possible, right? Are the developers, are the owners of this land still able to make a reasonable return on the property? And clearly, since they own... Grand Central Station, they're going to make a reasonable return on the property, right? There's still plenty of, of opportunities to do some development, uh, even, uh, even within the landmark preservation rules, uh, and therefore, um, reasonable return is fine, right? Rehnquist says this whole reasonable return thing isn't correct because what the law requires is just compensation for a taking. So once you decide that it's a taking, you owe whatever the difference is between um, what, it sh what you should be making and what, what you're actually going to make. And so the fact that you would have made more money um, doesn't is, is what matters. And that's what determines uh, your compensation. Right? And then finally, this nature of the government action. Brennan says this is a broad application. It's non-invasive. It's contingent on the very specific plans that are, that are promoted. It's possible that in some cases, even if you have a landmark designated building, you still might be able to do some development depending on the particular kind of development you wanted to do, uh, and it's a case-by-case -case analysis with broad application, right? Rehnquist says there's only 400 buildings in the entire city that get targeted in this way, right? This is a very, very specific uh, targeting of uh, buildings that are deemed important, uh, and they're deemed important. They're unrelated to the police power. As, as Rehnquist notes, the reason that Grand Central Station gets targeted here, and the reason you can't develop it is because it's too nice, right? It, it's designated as a landmark because it's too important. Uh, it's, it's something that the city has decided that tourists should be able to see, uh, that it should be left in its current state, and therefore this is, you know, Rehnquist says this is fine if they want to do this, but they got to pay. It's not a police power. It's not, you know, avoiding harm. It's not 
diminishing a nuisance. That's not what this is about. This is all about enhancing the city, maximizing the city, uh, and not police power. Right? Who has the better argument? So you can see how these cases go, right? These are multi-factor, you know it when you see it, sort of, let's throw everything in a box and mix it up and see what happens type of argument. So there's, all of these cases are going to turn out a little bit differently depending on the particular facts and circumstances. What do people think? Is this, is this fair to the developers? I think Greenquist has a better argument because, and also he was talking, I think, about not only can they not develop it, but they're required to maintain it. In sure. Yeah. I think as a policy concern, if the city of New York or whoever it is is really interested in maintaining such a thing, then they should be willing to pay for it because you know it incentivizes against people um, getting rid of their property before it becomes. A, I've, I've heard a story about a person that had a, a house on a big piece of property, and they come to find out that house was part of the Underground Railroad. <laughs> and they were going to turn it into a landmark, and the owner of the property bulldozed the house before that happened because she didn't want the liability of having to keep it maintained and all that. Kind of sure. Stuff. And so now we've lost that historical whatever. Okay. And so if if that's important to these people, then these people pay for it instead of instead of something's important to me, I'm going to make you pay for it. Okay. And that's not fair. All right. Yeah. What do people think? I think Rankless has a better argument, too, because, you know, I think the book is something about this, but you're actively discouraging works of, new, new great works of architecture from being developed because they might be so good, um, you know, down the line that they might not be allowed to, uh, to have control over them. And I, and I also think that there's, uh, there's something to be said for, um, well, never mind, actually. Right, so that's one set of issues. Both you and, and Jerry have raised one set of issues, and we'll talk about that in a minute. I mean, it's possible to structure a landmark preservations law where we just said, look, if we, if you get on the list of landmark uh, properties, you know, the city will pay for the exterior maintenance of your building, or you'll get, you know, X amount of dollars per year for maintaining it. I mean, there's ways of making it so that it, that it, it creates incentives for people not to bulldoze the building before it happens or whatever. Um, but let's just just on the on this, just on the sort of grounds here. I mean, who's got it right with respect to the denominator? Is this the right is the right denominator the um, the entire parcel, meaning they can develop on the inside and the concourses and make money that way, or is the right denominator that shaft of air that's going up above it that they're expressly <coughs> prohibited from from touching? How should we think about that? It seems it's weird that when I was reading this, it's very weird that they're using U.S. v. Cosby because in discussing that case, we say that the majority is in general conflating what property is and that we shouldn't really be giving air rights and property. So the fact that they've been citing this in the first place is, is weird. Right. So Cosby's an odd case to be citing for the ad quellum rule, right? But so, so haven't we said that these property rights and air don't really exist? Well, they exist as long as you can possess them, right? And I think that what what the it's highly speculative in terms of that significant diminution value. Oh, I don't know. I think that I mean, how many people think that you'd make a lot of money if you build a class A office tower on top of? Yeah. So I mean, I think that if you know, you can. I mean, this is a case where yes, indeed, you could possess those rights, right? You could go up and just keep building and have a have a probably very valuable uh, office space, right? Probably make a lot of money, Steve. The issue I see there, and kind of like you just mentioned and talked about before, is 
about people maximizing the property, putting the property to the best possible use. Sure. And this prevents the company from doing that. And so I don't see the rationale um, for preventing the best possible economic use of the property because it's a land. But is that a narrow, I mean, I think you might be right, but is that a narrow economic sense, right? I mean, is it not, I mean, what I think the city of New York would say is, overwhelmingly, the value to the city of New York, to all of the citizens of New York, is Grand Central Station left as it is, right? And they probably are right by that, right? It's a huge tourist attraction. People come from all over the world to go there um, and... And, uh, and walk around, and so would that be diminished if they allowed it to be destroyed in some way, right? And I agree with you. Yeah. That, but that's why they should pay for it. But, they sh but your argument is they, that's fine, but if they want to do that, they should pay for it. Yeah, right. Because it allows them to do indirectly what they can't do directly. Right. Okay. Amy, Fran? Today. Yeah. I like our whole twist of the argument with the transfer and development rights, though, right. too, because at the same time, I guess they were arguing that they're not fully taking it completely without compensation, and right. they did point out that there was a lot of substantial offers to pay for money for other companies or buildings, I guess, to use that airspace. Right. Yeah. So, 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 so that raises a good argument that they're not fully taking it without compensation. Right, so that and that's the question, right? I mean, it, it, part of it, Rehnquist says, is that's just a measure, of, that's just after-the-fact compensation. It's just, you know, what Rehnquist says is that just proves that they know they're guilty, right? So they're giving them some, some development rights. What Brennan says is, well, that proves that they're, in fact, not taking their value because they're all giving them an alternative value, which are these development rights, right? So, and it's interesting how... That seems like a nice thing, but you can spin it either way, right? It can either be sort of proof that you know that you're taking this and you shouldn't be, uh, and so you're giving them this form of compensation as, as, a, as a compensation for taking, or Brennan who says, well, this just shows that you're, you've got plenty of value that you can extract from, from the property. Right? I feel like it could be like a good middle ground, though, because sure. then at the same time you're economically satisfying them, and then you're also helping the overall welfare, I guess, of the public by keeping Grand Central Station looking good. like it does. Yeah, I mean, the, the transfer development rights can get complicated because, you know, what if you, because they can sort of float out there, right? You can, you, it's hard to sort of define exactly where they are, and they are very speculative in terms of how much value they actually have. But yes, in this case, it looked like there were a lot of people who wanted development rights for pro other properties. Uh, just had a question. The Penn Central, were they subject to price regulation in terms of what they could charge for people coming in and out of this terminal? Yeah, I don't know. You mean in terms of the, the train tickets themselves? I the sense that they were getting squeezed because their prices were regulated. So, so I wouldn't be surprised at all if the train ticket aspect of it, or even just the rental of the platforms, if they, if they didn't run the trains, uh, was indeed subject to regulation. Right? So I think they viewed their, their route to more money as development of some sort. Right? Yeah, I mean, it seems like that's the case, and the government has already, through regulation, prevented them from passing along the cost of this, um, then they're getting squeezed on both ends. Because if, I guess in theory, if they weren't subject to price regulation and the government said, uh, you can't build above, then they would say, all right, well, we're just going to start charging everyone more to maintain this beautiful terminal. So we'll True. Of course, there's a limit to how much they can do, right? 
uh, even on that ground because people just won't take trains anymore, right? They'll move. They'll they'll move to something else. Yeah, I mean, I think to a certain degree, but also it's kind of like people got to get into Manhattan, and there's a very fixed number of ways to do that. Sure. So many yeah. No. It's, I mean, I definitely think you're probably right that 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 the Penn Central was was feeling like, and it's it's very clear from the case they thought there they had to find a way to do some development, right? And what Brennan talks about is there's still all this space inside that's not, you know, really part of the of the train that you can redevelop that won't be run afoul necessarily of the of the landmark preservation laws. So, you know, there's still plenty of development. Plus these transfer development rights, you can, you know, sell those to somebody else and make money elsewhere. So, you know, what Brennan says is there's plenty of ways to make money. But it's clear Penn Central thought they needed the money. Because they went bankrupt eventually. Exactly. Right. And as it turns out, yeah, they did need the money. So, yeah. Uh, Caleb, I saw your hand up. You still? No? Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, like on, on, on Brennan's side, um, like, like you could argue that um, keeping Grand Central the way it is, uh, preserving it as a landmark, could actually increase the value of property. You can have more like higher cachet stores. Okay, sure. Inside, like as opposed to Penn Station, where it's like fast food joints. Yeah. Right. So, then, but how do you respond to say Steve and Brandon's argument that might be right, but just pay for it if you're the city? Show me the money. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, like they definitely have a good point. But like, you know, if if Grand Central did end up making more money, um, like staying the way it is, as opposed to just renting like cheap options, sure. right? They they get it. Yeah. No. I mean, it might be that the city was correct that this is the high at the in the long run. This is the highest and best use of the property to keep it in its original state and rent the inside. Well, I have a question about making the government pay for it. Are is the government then to take ownership of it, or are they just to pay for the maintenance? Because if Penn. Oh no, the government is going to have to pay just compensation, right? And you remember that what that means is whatever. The money that's being foregone because of the regulation would have to be paid. It doesn't have to do with the maintenance. I mean, when they're saying that if the government wants to maintain it this way, that the government should pay for the maintenance of it to keep it this way to have them. Well, that's, so that's one option. But I think when they say the government needs to pay for maintaining it this way, what they're saying is it's there. The government is freezing it in its current state. I mean, that's what landmark preservation laws do. They say whatever it looks like today. It always has to look like that. You have to keep it exactly that way, no further development. And I think the argument is if, if the city thinks that that's so valuable, then just, you know, pay them for that right. But if there's a benefit to that and the government is paying for it, does the government get that benefit that they pay for? Or does Penn Central that maintains ownership get the benefit of the government paying for the maintenance in that more beneficial state, whether they think that's the best well, so Penn Central would still own Grand Central, right? So they would have then the ability to do everything they would otherwise do as a landowner, subject to the regulation, which would be it has to be frozen in time, right? So you have to pretty much, you'd sort of, I mean, you probably literally would have these sorts of pictures and say, it has to stay like that. You can do what you want. You can make as much money as you want. You know, mess with stuff, you know, rent it to the gap down here, whatever it is, but it has to look like this um, uh, forever. And the government would then have to pay, if it was a taking, for whatever um, foregone uh, money that, 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 Grand, that Penn Central can prove would have been made if they could have done that. I guess my problem is just that it seems a little bit like the government is paying for Penn 
making the money off of the landmarks that I, as a taxpayer, am now paying for. Oh, sure. They're clearly doing that, but I think that at the time that the landmark preservation was enacted, that there was a real debate about whether or not this was the right approach or this was the right approach, right? And the property owner said, I'm going to make more money this way, right? And, and the city said, we don't care. We think that overall it's better uh, for the city, for landmark preservation purposes, to have it remain. So, but yeah, you're right. To some degree, maybe 40 years later, it looks like you know there was a huge benefit that conferred on the landowner. They didn't even know it, right? Maybe we protected them from their own uh, stupidity, right? Even if, even if that is more profitable, they're still getting a benefit from keeping it the other way. In what way? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but less. Their argument is less, right? Because I think if they legitimately thought that as of today they'd make more money by charging admission or whatever, then why not, right? Why spend all the money to build the skyscraper? They wouldn't do it, right? So clearly they did their analysis and they figured the way that we can make money, maximize our income is to do this, and we don't want to do that. And the city's telling us we have to stay here. Right? I, 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 I get it. I, I do. Yeah. Okay. I'm procedurally confused as to how the damage would be calculated. Like, does the city pay rent every year to freeze the structure, or do they somehow calculate? You're dealing here with future returns that are potentially handled. Right? Yeah, it's probably going to be a lump sum payment um, that would have to be evaluated on the on the basis of expert testimony that would say, uh, you know, I'm looking at you know, 40 years of rents for 40, you know, uh, 40. Uh, high-rise office buildings, or high-rise uh, floors of office space, and, and then, you know, diminution in value because the rest of it looks like crap, but, uh, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. So the government would owe, like, $750 They could, and obviously they might not pay it all at once. It might be in the form of, you know, tax breaks over the next 30 years or whatever. I mean, the government can pay it in a variety of ways, but in general, like, the calculation would be you owe this money, right? And there might be a deal. Almost all of these settle, right? Which is they work out some sort of deal. And the deal might include things like, you know, the, you pay for certain, you know, the city would pay for certain services or whatever. So. Is it possible to consider this almost a public trust thing where the beauty is given to the public and you can't affect that issue? Even though it's more profitable use and it's better. Even though it's more profitable use to do it that way, kind of like the, the university sure. wanted to make that they're going to, you know, reclaim the beach. It's really ugly right now, and it stayed ugly because of public trust doctrine. But, you know, but you say that this beauty has been given to the public, and now the property owner has a duty to maintain the aesthetic value of it to the public. Sure, but note that we don't use the public trust doctrine here at all, right? Because this was not, this did not become sort of given to the public until this panel of architectural experts surveyed the territory of Manhattan and picked out the 400 buildings that they thought were worthy of designation, right? So it's different in the sense that public trust is based on the idea that that, that you know, land has always been sort of subject to the sovereign, subject to the public, right? Here, this just happened a week ago, right? They basically just picked this, this particular property. But could you say that, uh, could they just say that they just discovered its immense value to the public 
I mean, you can say that. I mean, is, is, that a, is that a plausible argument? Well, remember, I mean, yeah, the theory is right, right? But it, the mechanism is quite different, right? Because public trust is held by the government. Here, we're not taking their, this is a regulatory taking. We're not taking their property at all. It's still owned by Penn Central. They have all attributes of ownership except for their ability to further develop it, right? So in that sense, it's pretty different from public trust where we're not going to allow sort of the changes to the property even if the, by anyone, right? But the theory is, is you know, probably similar. This landmark preservation thing is, you know, something that people feel strongly about. I mean, it's it's obviously open to some debate. I feel like part of what I was thinking when I was reading this, too, was that that, like, I mean, aside from whatever value there is in designated as a landmark, like, any landmark could develop these, like, architectural designs, building, like, an 80-story office building, like, on top of their, like, church or whatever it is, and say, okay, like, now I can't do this because I'm a landmark. Now, like, I'll take my $7 billion, please. Like, and I feel like that's like a, a potential problem. But once you do this, it's very Good. easy to... Yeah, so one problem with not with allowing this to be a taking would be you might encourage you know, churches or other uh, buildings that, would, that might be historic in nature to take advantage of the situation in some sense by saying, oh, of course we are always going to build this 80-story building. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Right. So the member compensation is as of the time of the designation or as of the purchase, right? So that to the extent that came in later, you would probably get the minute before that as your measure of compensation, right? But if you had pre-existing plans, it might encourage people to develop all these crazy plans, right, and just have them in your pocket in case they come uh, and say you're a, a landmark. Can. Well, they can in, in a couple of senses. One, there might be a deal, right, as part of the, the landmark preservations law that you get lower taxes. Two, they're worthless, right? And to the extent property taxes are based on the value of the land, sure, this is worth a lot less when you can't do anything to it. Well, I mean, no one would say Grand Central Station is worthless. Not worth, not worth less. <laughs> not worth less. <laughs> Clearly not worthless. Worth less than it would otherwise be. <laughs> <laughs> it was probably not too difficult for the commission to turn down this 50 story, very vanilla looking modern addition to Grand Central. Yeah. If they proposed a plan that would, like, maybe like a five story that would make more in harmony. A nice, tasteful. Yeah, friends go Okay. And then they still turn that down. Then Rehnquist's argument that they really are not allowed to do anything with it. That would be more valid. I think so. So you, this all goes on the aesthetics? Well, I mean, one of the, I think one of the reasons that, um, that it, it was turned down is to preserve the historical value of Grand Central. And sure. if like, an addition is more in harmony with the historical aesthetics, then... Okay. Right. So the question would might be, what are the terms of the landmark preservation law itself, right? Some of these landmark preservation statutes say no development, zero, period. We take the picture. It always has to look like the picture. Some of them say you can do further development, but it has to be in keeping with the overall character of the early use. Here, this appeared to be one that said zip, nothing, right, which is what Rehnquist was saying. Now, they could do 
internal development, right? They could do offices or stores, which they have done to some degree inside, but they couldn't do exterior changes, right? So how is this different than Euclid, right? Euclid, we said, is not a problem for takings, right? And no one even really thinks zoning is a problem from a takings perspective. How is this a problem? I think it's the difference of, like, where the burden is placed. So I think, I, I guess this is the majority, but it was like, so with zoning, everyone sort of bears the burden and everyone sort of bears the benefit as well, but in the taking case, um, just the just Penn Central owners um, bear the burden for everyone else to benefit. Okay, good. Uh, so that's, so just, no, I don't, I mean, so that's not, I guess that's not exactly what I would say, which is, I think the difference here is that in the Euclidean zoning, the idea was you had a, an overall master plan, right, which is actually quite different than here, right? You don't, you have sort of this general idea that you're going to preserve architecture, but there's not so really sort of the overall master plan, which makes you think that everybody's sort of getting and receiving particular kinds of benefits. Here, um, the, the, because you have a relatively, well actually, and when you think about Manhattan, a very small number of properties that are designated as landmark properties and therefore bear the full brunt of the regulatory regime, uh, it seems very different uh, from a, a uh, takings, from a, a property owner's perspective than the, than the overall sort of zoning plan. So for that reason, we think that these general schemes of zoning are not uh, suspect from a takings perspective, but landmark preservation laws can um, be more problematic. I mean, one of the issues here is that the court has not been very good about telling us um, what is and what is not a taking, right? So if, if you abrogate somebody's right to exclude, right, typically, uh, by statute anyway, uh, that's, that's going to be a taking, right? Now, if you abrogate somebody's right to destroy property, that's not going to be a taking. You abrogate somebody's right to build, no, that's not going to be a taking. Allard says they can, you can abrogate somebody's right to sell. That dealt with um, uh, important Native American historical goods uh, where the uh, federal law was passed that said those were now inalienable. Right? Even though they were inalienable right before, they were later inalienable. That was held not to be a taking. Um, and then, uh, on the other hand, the right to bequeath the property uh, has been held to be a taking, right? Anyone see a pattern here? I mean, these are case-by-case -case analyses. It seems quite clear that this right to exclude, right, the court feels like the right to exclude is really central, right, really core to your right as a property owner. That makes sense. We've talked about that the entire term, that your ability to exclude others from your property seems central to your rights as a landowner. Um, seems like the rest of it, though, is sort of case by case. Jared? Well, I guess I'll put my hand up because it's probably not relevant to this particular class, but the right to exclude has even been kind of abrogated in some civil rights cases. Okay. Yeah, even that, right. I mean, even that, in some cases, you're, there's going to be limits on your right to exclude. We've talked about a lot of those. Uh, but we're talking about sort of your, your full abrogation. Yep. Isn't that a little bit of a, just your question, isn't that a little bit of like an alien? going on here in terms of what is yes and what is no. Okay, explain. So, um, you can't destroy um, or sell, and that if you destroy something, you're taking away the rights and the, the state or the municipality protects that, and you cannot transact, as we've learned in the past, with, uh, with, an alien, with uh, property that has 
has inalienability rights, but you can bequeath and you can exclude, so you get some of those rights, but not, not all. Okay. All right. I'm trying to see that. So you see a pattern here in, in, with respect to alienability? All right, I guess so. So, but how does the Allard case fit into that then? Well, with an inalienability, you can't sell property. I mean, the, the right, but the the case there declared a piece of property. It's as if all of a sudden tomorrow the the, the statute was passed that said you can no longer sell. In this case, it was Indian headdress, Native American headdresses. Right. That they just one day said that. Right. So that that then. But that was held not to be a taking. That was just a regulatory uh, to preserve the history of, of uh, Native American culture. I think that's right. I mean, does that fit the pattern? I think it's hard to see much of a pattern here, other than this issue that right to exclude seems to be pretty core to whatever it is the court thinks is important. They're going to use you know, a multi-factor case-by-case analysis to try and figure out uh, how these uh, cases are all going to work out. Uh, and it doesn't look like the court has much of a theory about this, right? Um, and we talked about this already. Uh, is this a, a factor related to takings or compensation? Brennan says these are takings. Uh, and uh, yeah, Rehnquist says this just goes to compensation, right? So should we compensate for these landmark historical preservation laws, notwithstanding that they're not probably not takings, or that at least in this particular case it was not a taking? Should we compensate for them anyway? I mean, some of the issues were raised. Jaron raised, if you don't, people have incentives to potentially do bad things to historical properties in uh, anticipation of being declared a landmark, right? So that's a potential downside. I mean, also, if you don't, then, like, other people who are, like, commissioning buildings will probably steer away from some kind of very innovative design. Okay. So exactly. You might be worried about... about um, building a building that had um, uh, important uh, uh, architectural features because you'd get designated as a landmark. I think you'd be able to keep a lot of the integrity of the historical structure if you got compensation too, because renovating a lot of the really old buildings costs an extremely large amount of money Good. if you keep in accord with the original historical design of it. Sure, exactly, right? I mean, you might be worried that in many cases this, uh, these uh, landmark preservation uh, ordinances will result in, in well, these, these properties can be real albatrosses, right? I mean, they, they can be really hard to keep up, uh, and your inability to do much to make them more commercially viable can often be cost, uh, make it so that they, they're cost prohibitive, and a lot of people won't maintain them very well. And so we might need to have uh, ways of, of dealing with that. What a lot of people do, uh, by the way, is, is they will sell um, uh, properties uh, like this to historical um, sort of nonprofit organizations who will then rent and make some money, but not necessarily sort of full compensation. And they will take donations and, in some cases, uh, government money to maintain the property. So sort of a public-private partnership in some cases, even if we don't directly pay for um, uh, these historical preservations. Justine? Sure. Right. If you don't uh, limit this in some way, and this is, uh, you know, one concern, is that, you know, what's to stop a community who just wanted to lock everything into the status quo of just saying, 
everything now is, is a landmark, no development possible, right? Now, I would think that the courts would find that to be a, uh, a taking or illegitimate, but, you know, who knows? But I think on the other hand, sometimes these uh, historical preservation laws can really help out. Uh, I think in a place in Colorado where it was uh, Silverton, Colorado, it's like mm -hmm. not, wasn't much of a tourist site, but then they, oh, it's historically relevant. You know, sure. people started going to it, and that town or whatever is doing a lot better now than it, than it was. So yeah. Is it really fair that they get double compensation for it? Yeah. Case? Right. I mean, even in Philadelphia, the Chestnut Hill area has a significant amount of. of um, historical preservation regulations along uh, a few blocks of, of Germantown Avenue, and it has, you know, since the, the 70s really sort of revitalized that district. Um, uh, and, I mean, interestingly enough, it's all sort of fake. The buildings never looked like that historically. It's sort of they made up this new historical facade for most of the buildings, but it's worked, right? It really has generated a lot of uh, economic development in that particular area. All right, so we'll do Loretto on Wednesday, and... Um, and be done. Transferable development right.